Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. I'm Ant Sharwood and today on the show we're going to talk about feral people advocating for feral horses. That's not very polite but it's kind of true. We'll be talking about a power plant that is closing seriously early. We're going to talk about Queensland which will actually live up to its name as the Sunshine State by harnessing all that glorious sunshine. We're going to talk about a plan to stop Australian animals going extinct. Now there's fruit news, Elfie, and I'm not going to tell you which fruit it is quite yet. Let's just say the news is not good. It might make you feel a bit blue. And there's plenty more. Oh, but you never make me feel blue. Elfie Scott, you're always smiling and chirpy. How are you after a beautiful <laughs> long weekend? I'm good. You're absolutely right. I do feel chirpy after a long weekend. I feel rested. But I also suspect that you might not feel totally rested after yeah. the weekend that you had, because I've seen some stuff on Instagram and Twitter, and and I would like to know what is happening with this horse's story. Um, to give you context, Anne actually wrote an entire book called The Brumby Wars around what is happening with feral horses. What is going on this week and why have you been so ramped up on Twitter? Oh, my God. Apparently, I'm uh, lying in my boudoir doing unspeakable things, according to someone who has trolled me. Um, and much worse than that. But look, Jesus, I can package this in about 23 seconds. Um, I wrote The Brumby Wars. Everyone has heard about it, even if they don't know much about it. It is about the uh, right of uh, Brumbies or feral horses to exist in Kosciuszko National Park and, and the Victorian high country. Uh, they make a mess. They're unbelievably destructive animals on a fragile environment. They don't belong there. The Brumby advocates are on the march this week because a cull is underway. Ah. This cull is mandated by law and they're reducing a herd, Elfie, of 14,000 down to 3,000. That is a lot. In the previous plan, they were offered you can have 600. They rejected that. John Barillaro put through legislation, the NSW Deputy Premier, as he was then, to protect the Brumbies. And under that legislation... There can now be 3,000. That is five times as many as they got in the previous plan. Wow. They should be happy with that. It's a lot of horses. Ecologists say there should be zero. It is still an enormous herd. But the culling has started and they're all crying and they're all saying you're killing all our Brumbies. I got on uh, a Sydney commercial radio station, Elfie, and called them Sooks. Oh, no. How did that go down? <laughs> yeah, well, how do you think it went down? But the <laughs> thing is, I think you can call someone a Sook contextually, and I did. I said, if I was offered 600 or something and then I was offered 3,000, I'd go, geez, that's five times as many. It, it reminds me of the little girl in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think she was Veruca Salt, Elfie. Mm. Um Daddy, I want a pony. And she got a pony. Daddy, I want another pony. You know, and <laughs> how many bloody ponies do these people want? Uh, that is my point. That was my point. Uh, probably I wouldn't call them sooks again, but it, it, they, they should grow up. They should accept compromise. I'm talking to the Brumby advocates here. Um, they should stop trolling me on Twitter because a lot of them have defamed me and I'm about to get litigious if it keeps going. So let's leave it there. Wow. Okay. Well, can I recommend for the audience, if you haven't listened to it, Anne and I did an interview together actually over the summer series where we spoke specifically about the Brumby, War about the Brumby Wars and sort of walked everybody through what Anne has written about. It's fantastic journalism. I highly recommend reading the book, but I'm very sorry that this is carrying on for you. <laughs> oh, it, it just flares up from time to time. And, and 
as I, I admit, I poured a bit of fuel on the flames, but I was frustrated. So, uh, look, let's move on. Uh, there are going to be uh, fewer flames uh, at the Loy Yang Power Station. Are there not? It's going to close early. It's one of Australia's grr, uh, biggest coal plants. In fact, I think it's the biggest emitter in the country, is it not, Elfie? Yes. And can I commend you on another fantastic segue? So Lo so <laughs> Yang A, which is AGL's plant in the Latrobe Valley, is now slated to close a decade earlier than we expected. It will be closing in 2035. So just so we can give you an understanding of how heinously emitting than this plant is, it is a brown coal plant that generates about 30% of Australia's power of Victoria's power rather every year and brown coal for those who don't know is less efficient and more emissions heavy than other forms of fossil fuels it's the worst form of coal basically and yeah so this is fantastic news that the single largest emitting industrial facility in the country will be closing much sooner than we thought but I also want to make this point because this was a point that I read in Renew Economy the news isn't just that Law Yang is powering down there's important news about what AGL is going to be replacing the plant with. And according to their own climate transition action plan, that is going to be a mix of wind, solar power and battery storage. So it's good news, but then we're level leveling up with more good news, basically. Yeah, that's good. And this is all ahead of the uh, Victorian election, which is imminent, isn't it? So perhaps mm. there's a bit of a tie in there, but it's good to see the states going in that direction, Elfie, uh, making some of the climate running themselves. And I guess that brings us to our second story of the week, which is Queensland, which, as I flagged in the intro today, the Sunshine State is going to be using a lot of sunshine because uh, the Palaszczuk government uh, has just delivered a whole big new energy and jobs plan that will, as it says, turbocharge the state's... I think we need a better... Uh, better phrase than turbocharge because that sounds very very sort of fossil fuel orientated so, <laughs> what's the green version of a turbocharge i don't know but we're going to work on that during the week but it, <laughs> it, it, it is going to hasten let's say that's a weak word but anyway the state is going to have a bunch more renewables thanks to the new queensland plan now they've uh announced that they're uh, that they're sorry raising their renewables target to 70 percent by 2032 and then 80 percent by 2035, that, by the way, is up from the current target for, for uh, 2035 of 50%. So it's a massive um, sort of uh, raise in the, the ambition of how quickly they, they want to get to renewables. And uh, it's good to see and there's more, isn't there, Elfie? Yeah, absolutely. So on top of this target, they're also chucking an extra $62 billion, which is no sort of small amount of cash. Um, They're chucking that cash into regional communities, job transitions, training, and renewable power for the entire state. Uh, They have also got a job security guarantee for workers uh, because they're committing to converting all of Queensland's publicly owned coal-fired power plants into clean energy hubs by 2035. So for everybody who is working in those plants they will have some job security in the future and I think that that's a fantastic guarantee especially for Queensland considering just how much coal there is in that state right now. Yeah well I believe there is something Elfie like like 50 operational coal mines still going on in Queensland and you know um, Palaszczuk has a very very difficult job and I, I understand that the, the, the government does because 
there are a lot of operational coal mines. There are a lot of seats in the sort of central parts of Queensland and the north um, that that have a lot of coal votes. So it's a, it's a, it's a delicate line that they tread. But I'm not always sure it's it's um, the most honest line that they tread. I mean, put it this way: I think five weeks ago, five six weeks ago, in the last week of uh, August, uh, Queensland Resources Minister Scott Stewart announced the expansion of a mine, the new Ackland Thermal Coal Mine, which is out just west of Toowoomba. Um, they issued a two-line press release around that, Elfie. It was uh, what we call in journalism buried, um, but it was news. It happened. Uh, and now they've actually released this terrific new energy plan through the Climate Council. So they're getting all the kind of green cred by doing that. And they deserve green cred for doing that. But we should never forget that Queensland is still very much a coal state. So we've got our eyes on you, Anastasia, don't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And look, I think that most of the commentary that I've read about this has just been like, she's talking a lot of talk. Is she actually going to walk the walk? So we'll see what happens with this. But I do actually want to make a point that Ben Smee wrote in The Guardian this week that the energy plan is interesting in that it demonstrates that while there might be a lot of communities who are still really worried about the transition into renewable energy, these sort of entrenched fossil fuel mining communities, it also shows that there's a lot of optimism happening right now. And it seems like the politics of climate change might be changing in Australia, finally. Who knows? But no, we, we will see. Don't forget that Queensland, uh, you know, elected no fewer than three Greens MPs in, 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 in Brisbane at the federal election. I mean, we'd, we'd only ever had one federally. So mm. there's something green going on uh, in the sunny <laughs> state. No no doubt about that. Now, there's something green going on on uh, Tanya Plibersek's desk, is there not, as well? Yes, there is. So I believe it was today, if not yesterday. Yeah. But the federal government is going to put a stop to any new extinctions of Australian wildlife, according to a new plan launched by Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek. So the government has set the goal of conserving and improving the trajectory of 110 species and 20 sort of places or habitats by 2027. This is building on a previous commitment that was made by the Albanese government that by 2030, we're going to see 30% of Australia's land and sea areas in conservation reserves. But as much as this might sound like fantastic news, which it is because it is one of the most ambitious sort of species conservation plans that we've seen a federal government roll out, there has been a little bit of confusion and a little bit of criticism around this, hasn't there, Anne? Oh, there has. Um, but look, I mean, the Greens took a swipe. Um, they said that these goals are flat out unattainable um, as, as as long as they keep approving new coal and gas projects, which, oh, look, it's a fair point. It's a bit tangential to me. I mean, you can't mm -hmm. conflate climate and biodiversity. It is very, very linked, but you, you shouldn't conflate it in every single case. Sometimes the biodiversity discussion is the biodiversity discussion. Sure. Um, and I also think that, that you know other conservation well, i don't think I, i've read that other conservation groups have pointed out that there's uh going to be a cash shortfall here uh, mm. i believe it's estimated we need something like 1.6 billion to properly tackle our extinction crisis uh rather than the 200 million or so that's set aside nonetheless it's good news on paper that might be one of our new bingo phrases like floor <laughs> not floor not a ceiling um but anyway, it is good news on paper, but I thought we'd talk to an expert for this week's interview, Elfie, about how this might play out. So, native 
animal extinctions. What are the main causes? What else do we know about them? How can we stop it happening? There is a zero extinction target. That's what actually Tanya Plibersek announced, and she announced it today. So give ourselves a pat on the back. We're right across the news today. Tanya Plibersek announced the zero extinction target. I thought I'd speak to James Trezice. He is the conservation director at the Invasive Species Council. He knows more about this stuff than anyone else. So let's roll our interview with James. So James, you have today uh, called Tanya Plibersek's announcement of a zero extinction target uh, as very welcome news. I'm sure it is. So give us the big picture. Dazzle us, or I suppose rather horrify us with some <laughs> statistics on extinctions in Australia and some of the most common causes. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Ant. Um, look, Australia is a world leader when it comes to mammal extinctions. Uh, we're fourth globally for the extinction of animals overall. So we are uh, a global extinction hotspot. And extinction isn't really this thing that happened when uh, Europeans invaded um, the country. It is a contemporary uh, event. So extinction is occurring right now. We've had uh, three vertebrates go extinct or three animals go extinct in Australia since 2009. And I think a lot of people don't really understand just how imminent and um, severe the extinction risk is to Australia's native wildlife. So the fact that the federal government has put this ambitious goal of zero extinctions on the table is very welcome. I'm not sure there's a timeline attached to it. Uh, I guess maybe there shouldn't be. Maybe it just means none henceforth we have had our last extinction. Do you think that's a realistic thing to aim for? I would like to say that it is a realistic thing to aim for, but I think the proof is going to be in the pudding. And so I guess the, the rub on the announcement today from uh, the government is that it is all well and good to have an ambitious goal and we welcome it, but the truth is where the rubber hits the road. And so what we need to see now is the funding and the reforms and the policy decisions that will actually turn around the trajectories for our native wildlife and ecosystems. And so that means making some really hard decisions about protecting important places. It means taking some really hard decisions around uh, controlling invasive species. And, you know, we've spoken at length in our time around the impact of feral horses on places like Kosciuszko, but feral deer, feral cats, uh, even things as complex and small like myrtle rust, which is going to send uh, upwards of 15 native rainforest trees extinct in a generation. That's what the science is telling us. They have no natural defences to this. So it is a huge task. And, you know, the government has set, its, set itself this objective. And so now the question is that we make sure that they deliver on it. You say tough decisions. To me, they sound like easy decisions. Well, they're easy theoretical decisions. St stop it all happening. But... Why are the decisions so tough? Is it difficult to allocate money to some of the sort of less sexy um, species or, you know, people hate cats being killed? You tell me, why is it so tough? 
I think, well, there's a, a, a diversity of pressures that are facing our natural wildlife. And so when it comes to things like invasive species, one of the key things we need is more investment and in, in the control and eradication of invasive species. Invasive species have been the major driver of those mammalian extinctions, particularly cats and foxes. Uh, and they've been the major, majority driver of most of extinctions in, in, in Australia. The challenge is when it comes to convincing uh, bureaucrats, uh, Treasury to invest in something like invasive species control, invest in something like the environment, uh, it is often put more in the nice to do basket whilst their uh, priority is often in economic terms. So a great example would be a recent acquisition of submarines or the stage three tax cuts. And so the environment issues that we face are not divorced from the broader policy issues that we face as a society. Um, you know, the government is hoping that the philanthropic sector and the private sector are going to step in and, and feel this kind of market failure that we have for the environment. The environment is a public good. If you go back to year 12 economics, um, it's a public good. It requires, and um, there's a market failure there, it requires government to step in and invest. And so that is going to be a key measure. Um, but unfortunately, there is a lot of resistance within the system, within government, to investing significant amounts of money into uh, environment protection and restoration. Uh, and I think that largely then talks to where people's priorities are. So people often want to make sure that, um, you know, funding is going to other priorities. And when we see elections come around, we see a whole bunch of pork barreling and investments go to other places. So, making sure that we are making the case that the environment matters, that we all depend on it and that we don't want to see species go extinct uh, and that there is investment there. The other part of that is also, yeah, go. Oh, well, I, I guess, so we've, we've got to keep the pressure on, on the government, don't we? We don't, we, we can't assume that because there's been an announcement today, they're now going to tackle this. We've got to keep the pressure on to fund the programs properly, things like feral cat eradication. And um, I'm pretty interested in feral cats. Uh, look, I've, I've read that, James, there are there are something uh, like anywhere between about two to twenty million, depending where you read. What's what's your take on how many they are, and and just give us an example of how destructive they are. So the reality is, um, feral cats uh, have a huge impact on our native wildlife. They've been implicated in uh, the extinction of twenty seven um, native species, almost um, could be as high as thirty. And, and the reality is that they're, them, along with domestic cats, are responsible for the loss of 2 billion animals every year. That's a huge number. I mean, you know, we talked about billions of animals being killed in the uh, Black Summer fires, but th that was over a, you know, that was one summer. This is happening every year. Uh, quickly, before I let you go, still on cats, how do we get rid of them? What do we do with however million, many million there are of feral cats out there? Look, it's not a straightforward solution. So there's obviously a range of control measures. And with all invasive species control, you want the full suite of control measures available. So, you know, you can go out and hunt feral cats. Um, there is trapping. And for uh, areas close to, I guess, population centres, there's new technology coming out, such as the Felix grooming trap, which enables uh, really targeted um, using AI to um, make sure that there isn't any other bycatch or bykill from the, the trap itself. But it is a huge task and all of these things require people, they require um, resources, uh, they require those Felix the grooming traps are, are not cheap. So the 
the simple reality is we need to invest in that suite of control measures. Uh, and there's some other new technology on the horizon as well. So we're looking at gene drives and also um, you know, immunocontraceptive um, approaches to feral cat management. And then, of course, we've got domestic cats and making sure people are keeping their cats at home, keeping them safe. Um, you know, domestic cats are responsible for a significant amount of um, wildlife kill as well. And so one of the easiest ways to make sure that you're keeping your cat safe at home uh, is by not letting them free roam beyond your property boundary. And that just means in investing in some cat containment or keeping your cat inside. And of course, in the ACT where you live, they have uh, the strictest cat laws in Australia, don't they? Yeah, so ACT has introduced uh, mandatory cat containment, which is being phased in um, through to 2030. And so we're waiting to see how that program rolls out. But there are already suburbs in the ACT that are cat-free or um, cat containment suburbs. And what that means is... It, just means people are keeping cats within their property boundary, just like you would a dog. Um, you know, people are not allowed to let their dogs free roam through a neighbourhood. And so the same rules should apply to cats. Okay, James. Well, look, uh, Tanya Plibersek has talked a lot about biodiversity. That is a beautiful word. She has talked a lot about extinctions. That is an absolutely abhorrent word. Uh, we want to return to biodiversity and the Invasive Species Council for which you work is one of the bodies uh, working towards that. People can, of course, donate to the Invasive Species Council if they want to help all this along. So uh, for now, James Trezice, Conservation Director at the Invasive Species Council, thank you very much for talking to the Green Canary. Thanks for having me, Ant. All right. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for bringing that interview to us. And I really appreciated it. And I also think that James was a fantastic voice to have in this conversation. I think it's interesting because a lot of the analysis that I've read about Plibersex plan is talking also about things like land conservation, those sort of things that we have talked about in earlier episodes, especially when it comes to things like koalas talking about, you know, what is the point of any of this conservation planning if they're not going to stop logging and habitat destruction. And I also think adding cats into the mix is a very interesting point because unfortunately I am one of those people who loves cats and is probably about to get one. So I think these are important considerations to make for pet owners. I absolutely adore cats, Elfie. And indeed I had one for many years when we switched to a dog I said, that's fine. I just want the dog that is most like a cat. Um, <laughs> you do have a rather cat-like dog, actually. I have a cat dog. I have, I have a whippet. You take it to the park and it runs for five minutes uh, once a day. Then it sits on the couch and it is a cat. Um, <laughs> and I absolutely adore cats, but, you know, we have to get serious about cat ownership. You live relatively close to the centre of the city. That's a pretty good place to have a cat. Mm -hmm. But you've got to keep them indoors, especially at night. Uh, there's a lot of things you've got to do. James actually... Uh, you know, we had a bit of a chat about that off air, but there's some in the interview, as you would have heard as well. And and um, just uh, cats are the big killer on this. And, oh, Elfie, my little brain is looking for a segue from something feline to a, uh, a Baltic Sea pipeline, but I got nothing. <laughs> I have failed the segue Look, test. Honestly, it rhymes. So I'm genuinely feline impressed to, to some degree. You did it. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so let's go there. This, this is mulch. This is the section of the pod where we're just running through some of the little headliney things that you or we or somebody saw. Um, Nord Stream, a pipeline ruptured. Uh, it's not a good story, is it, Elfie? 
No, God, this is a devastating story. So there is a natural gas pipeline that runs from Russia under the Baltic Sea uh, to Germany and the rest of Europe. And there have been several ruptures. I believe there have been four ruptures in this pipeline. And it is spilling out methane at this rate that has basically never been seen before from a single event. So research has found that the leak rate from one of four rupture points in the Nord Stream was 22,000 kilograms of methane per hour. And that is equivalent to burning about 270 tonnes of coal every hour. Nobody knows what has happened to the pipeline. There have been, there's been speculation about saboteurs, potentially. I don't want to put that out there in just in case, like it's a little bit too speculative, but yeah, it's, it's horrific to read about, honestly. And the researchers that I've read who are commenting on it are just saying, you know, bloody hell, like we are trying to stop emissions as much as humanly possible. And then this comes along. It's just, it's awful. This, this is a climate story, Elfie, and it's a geopolitical story. It's a climate story because of what you mentioned, because of 22,000 kilograms of methane per hour. Methane is, of course, 80 times more powerful than CO2 as a trapper of heat, as a greenhouse gas. It goes away quicker, but its immediate effects are way stronger. So it's a thing you do not want to leak. It's a geopolitical story. Uh, possibly because uh, the it was deliberately sabotaged. We don't know. But we've got a European winter coming. This is the pipeline between Russia and Germany. Um, there is so much politics now around this supply of gas as Russia's war on Ukraine continues to rage. We know that Germany has hastened uh, production of renewables in some sectors, but this gas is still needed. So uh, this it seems to me that uh excuse the pun this this story is going to spill over for a while yet so we'll stay across it yeah absolutely okay now we're going to talk about the thing that has made ant most angry in recent weeks other than the brumby wars <laughs> king charles is not going to cop 27 what is going on it's a cop out uh elfie oh, is what God, it is. of course oh, it is come on, they had to say that i but... know you did you're like legally obligated to do i am that. but but listen since it's in egypt i won't say that it's a pyramid scheme okay i just won't yeah. go there but but seriously go to cop charles go to cop just go apparently his trust advised him not to go hang on i thought the king trumped the pm anyway i don't want to get into you know how the head of state actually functions versus the sort of parliament but the issue here is king charles has been a uh, long-term advocate on all things environment at cop 26 he memorably said this is our last chance to saloon to do something as we have joked here several times we love it when uh, members of a british royal family invo invoke uh, cowboy language to get their point across i want cowboy language at cop 27 in egypt uh elfie who are we going to get our cow cowboy language from now <laughs> It's a very fair question. I don't know. And also, like like we've said before, it just baffles me that at the point in his career when he ostensibly has the most power and influence, he's choosing to step away from the thing that matters most. I just, I don't get it. What is more important than saving the planet uh, and being the most sort of one of the most powerful people on the planet and being interested in saving the planet and going, no, it is more important that I tend to the fricking lawns at Balmoral Castle or whatever he's doing. I don't know, but we do not like that Charles is going to cop. We do think it's a cop out. And Elfie, last story for the week, because enough said on, on that. Um, look, um, just quickly, have you ever been to the Big Banana in Coffs Harbour? 
I love the big banana. I think it's a fantastic tourist spot. Well, well, I think you're insane because I think it is one of Australia's lamest things. Uh, It's not quite as bad as the big potato in Robertson, uh, just down near Mossvale on the southern highlands of New South Wales, because it looks like a big thing that a big potato might look like. But not rating the big banana, but look, bananas used to be the big thing in Coffs Harbour, the, the main crop. I was stunned this week to learn that blueberries now account for 200 million of the 250 million. Uh, so that's 80% of the local agriculture industry in and around Coffs Harbour. But there's not good news around blueberries, is there? No. So this is a fantastic report that comes from The Guardian uh, by investigative journalist Anne Davies. She basically outlined the issues with agricultural runoff from the blueberry industry in Coffs Harbour. I didn't know this. Who knew? But it does make sense when you think about it. It feels like blueberries don't grow in Australia easily, I guess. Like that instinctively feels correct to say. But blueberries require intensive farming and the mid-north coast is seeing the environmental impact of pesticides and fertilizer runoff from blueberry farms. And that agricultural runoff is ending up in lakes and the sea. And scientists are warning that fishing and prawn industries could be threatened by it. Blueberries are doing damage. I am switching to apple muffins, and that is my last word. (laughs) It's completely fair. I don't know if I can. No, you know what? Let's do it. No more cats outside, and let's stop eating blueberries for a little while. Let's see what we can do. (laughs) Well, find all organic blueberries. There's a few out there, and they they cost a lot, but normal blueberries still cost cost a lot anyway. So uh, let's see if we can find some good organic blueberries and eat them while we pod next week. Yeah. Okay. So that is all we have time for on this episode of The Green Canary. Thank you so much for joining us once again. As always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Thank you, Elfie. And I'd just like to remind everyone to sign up for the newsletter, hello at thegreencanary.co. We also have one of Australia's finest web designers almost finishing our website, so you can just go (laughs) click. That would be Elfie Scott. I can't wait to see your handiwork. Finest. Uh, Absolutely. Absolute finest and and, and most dedicated. And uh, don't forget to chat to us on socials. We had some great chats uh, on socials about the Brumby issue last week. Uh, We are, of course, at Green Canary Pod on Twitter. And we are at Green Canary Media on Instagram, where Elfie posted some videos of our pod last week, and I was shocked. Shocked, I tells you, to discover that I don't have hair. I didn't know I didn't have hair. How long has <laughs> that been going on for? <laughs> Nobody tell Ant, okay? <laughs> but we'll see you next week, and thank you so much. Bye! Bye. Bye.